This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week, as all weeks, by my co-hosts, tablet senior writer Leah Leibovitz. The chametz-free Leah Leibovitz. Already chametz-free? A hundred percent. The deed is done? Do you do the feather and the burning and the... Night before Passover. Candle and feather, baby. All right. And deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Let my podcast go. <laughs> and today... We bring you a very special jam-packed Passover episode, and we mean it's actually packed with jam because jam is kosher le Pesach, and you know. Although you know that some fucked-up sect of Jews be like, well, according to the Mishnah, <laughs> jam is not like the whole gabrak thing. You follow the gabrak thing, I love right? it. Yeah. Sure. Uh, explain that. Ex- yeah, gotta explain. Explain that, that, one. that for our listeners. So, gebracht is the belief that if you wet matzah, you start a process of fermentation that then um, basically leavens. negates right leavens the bread and negates the so whole. So all of the, the things we make, the kosher for Passover, cakes, matzah, ball, all things that make it somewhat bready and therefore matzah edible. Right, matzah lasagna. They say matzah pizza are not kosher for Passover. Forbidden. Right. All you can do is eat the dry, crumbly only that cracker. Eat it like over a napkin. Yeah. So the crumbs, the crumbs don't will not interact with any sort of liquid. It just Stupid. makes the whole week like a lot drier than it already is. I feel like, you know, when you like chew just matzah right. and it just gets so dry in your mouth. It That's w- what the whole holiday is. But it like, makes literally it figured, more desert-like. It's basically. weird because like there's moisture in your mouth. Yep. So there were, I would, I'm sure there's someone your who's Your like, mouth is not kosher Passover. You have to intravenously <laughs> exactly right. take, get that matzah. You have to clean it out with a feather and a candle <laughs> every time you eat anything. So, so I'll be making those, those puppies myself. Today, in this jam-packed, and we used a little like pastry, like squeegee. A little to, like, out situation. Yeah, to put the jam into our Passover episode. Uh, we speak with food writer Melissa Clark. Uh, she's going to talk about, what are you going to talk about? The Instapot and Passover. The Instapot. Instant Pot. This is not an app, Stephanie Butnick. <laughs> the Instacart. I put the Instant Pot in my Instacart. Uh, we have a conversation with restaurateur Gabriel Stolman, who spoke with Stephanie about celebrating Mamona. I spoke with my wife, Sid, about the travails of making a vegetarian <laughs> Seder. Liel hopped on the phone with Paul Germain, the legendary TV writer responsible for the Rugrats Passover episode. And our producer, Josh Cross, uh, is going to introduce some really interesting tape uh, with William Rapfogel, the former chief of New York's Metropolitan Council on Jewish Poverty. He, of course, was sent to prison for using that charity to defraud people of millions of dollars. And he talks about his literal time in bondage and how he made a Seder uh, in federal penitentiary. But first, uh, just one one news of the Jews item. And, and this is a kind of, um, it's not a specific news item. It's a topic to discuss. Comes out of our Facebook group, whom we want to thank for this. Apparently, uh, according to people who follow the Facebook group, there was a good thread on the question of whether Christians can have satyrs. Because apparently some of them do. Well, someone started getting sponsored ads <laughs> about like a messianic congregation <laughs> doing a satyr like Jesus did. Um, Which he didn't do. Uh, yeah. And then um, the funniest part was like, this is not a full meal. This is a this is like a sermon. Like this is a, pr- a prayer service. That's how you know it's a <laughs> Gentile service. And I was like, well, yeah, that's, I'm not going to that one. <laughs> all, all the readings, none of the brisket, right? And it's dry, right? And none, it's gabrak. None of the wine, none of the matzo ball soup, none of the flourless chocolate cake. But do, what do we think about this? I mean, in the thread, some people are saying cultural appropriation. This is our holiday. Only we have the right to tell it. And then there's How like, dare Jesus, you? it was a Seder, the Last Supper. There's a lot of back and forth about it. Okay, I've read the New Testament, and it does What's not that? It does not seem that it is a Seder. I mean, no, the scholarship one is not. It is not a Seder, uh, and it's certainly not a Seder in the way that we do Seder. It is not part of Christian tradition. So this idea that they are recapturing 
early church Christianity, um, that's not what they were doing. So it, it reminds me of the John Mulaney bit where his wife, they, they want to do a portrait of their dog, Petunia, as Jesus in the Last Supper. He's a comedian. He's very funny. And he was like, you turned me on to him. And yep. she and his wife is Jewish. And she's like, yeah, like, you know, we'll have the thing and the turkey. And he looks at her and he's like what do you think the last supper was? And, and he's like, just say it. And he was, she was like, Thanksgiving. Like, no one actually knows what the last Seder was. You just said last Seder. The last, last Seder. Su- That's 420. There we go. I think so Christians but are, are we okay with them doing it? I am a hundred percent okay with it, but I think there should be like a writer. Ready? <laughs> if you do, a Passover Seder and you're a Christian, you then also have to pick one less pleasant Jewish holiday. <laughs> like you do this, you have to do Tanis Esther. Tanis Esther. You have to you have to fast, yeah. fast <laughs> until sundown. I think it's weird. It's a balance to the universe. It's, it's a little icky to me. Um, I don't like the idea that they're taking like they're putting Jesus into something that actually has nothing to do with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that that bothers me a little bit. I get this, like, if you, you know, you want to do a Seder, do a Seder, but um, I don't like it. But here's here's my question, and it's an honest one. How many Jews do you think gathering on Friday are going to read, let's let's start with high numbers. How many, what percentage of American Jews are going to read 100% of the Haggadah? Well, depends. Do they get the Maisel uh, Maxwell House guide this year? If right. so, then. Because I got it. <laughs> knew. I mean, you mean like the full Hallel and the full, full thing of all American Jews? Four cups. I mean, less than one. Well, probably like 7%. Right. right. I would say not even all ultra-Orthodox okay. Jews are going to get all of it. How many are even going to read all the way, like the whole thing up until the meal? Like not the ten minutes. I think minute a lot version. of people do. Yeah, I think a lot of people really? do. Sure. I mean, yeah. at that point, you're at twenty percent, maybe. Yeah, um, yeah. That's, that's kind of what I think. Like, yeah. 25%. So you're like, oh, this is more people to uh, do. This is a way to actually keep this thing alive because, like, at no. some point in forty years, like the only people would actually be reading this would be some no, because like, they're not hearty, actually reading the evangelicals from Idaho. They're reading their own version of it that is about Jesus. Like, oh, so here's they're the, not reading the Maxwell House Haggadah. Are, well, are they buying that? This would be, I am sure. I guarantee Ooh, you. What a great opportunity. I, Should we just market a Haggadah for them? I guarantee yeah. you. I swear on the life of our second dog, Minerva McGonagall Oppenheimer. Oh, geez. That whatever the Messianic Jews are using has weird Messianic Christian inser- insertions. It's not the Haggadah is my point. No, they're not my, doing the Haggadah. My point is you can't leave it to okay. them to preserve the well, Haggadah. I oppose they don't, that. Yeah, you, can't, you can't outsource. <laughs> I have this terror of them like breaking into Dayenu and Chad Gadya. Like, I can only imagine at a certain point. Chad Gadya. The, right. The burlesquing <laughs> of it. The burlesquing of it. The sort of the lampooning of our tradition. Yeah. However well-meaning. I mean, look. if It's not well-meaning. Let's just say that it's their goal in a Seder is not our goal in a Seder, which is to recreate the story of the What if Exodus. whoever's leading the Seder has to change his name to Chad Gadiaf? <laughs> <laughs> Messianic Jewish rabbi, Chad, Chad Gadiaf. There we go. Um, so look. Um, Who knows one? We, we need... <laughs> <laughs> we need to check in about what, you know, Seder prep looks like in all of our respective households, including the newly square foot expanded uh, Butnick Cohen household. But before we do that, we want to ask you guys, look, if you get nothing else out of Seder, get us a listener or two or three. Um, if, you, if, it, if it accords with your tradition, with your household minchag, take your cell phone. 
We're not recommending you do this, but if it's gonna be, if they're gonna be phone pictures taken anyway, and it's in Shabbos too, so it's a double whammy. That's right. Uh, if they're saying like, well, I don't know, what's my entry point? You remember that extraordinary story that we did about uh, debunking the Ellis Island myth on the last episode? We're doing a special version of that episode, which is just Noah's Ellis Island story, just that one segment. And if you go to bit.ly/slash Ellis Island names, that's bit.ly/slash Ellis Island names, and we will have that segment for you. It'll be in nice bite-sized little bit of unorthodox. So do that for do that for us, but really do it for them because everyone needs needs a good podcast. Okay. Speaking of satyrs, what's going on with you guys? You guys, I was down at Duke this weekend and on Thursday night I sat down at the Freeman Center, which is the Hillel on campus, and had dinner with some students. And it was really, really fun to talk to them, to explain a little bit about what we do, about the show, about tablet. Um and I heard the greatest idea of all time because I said, what, you know, what are you guys doing for your state for your satyrs? And there was, you know, there's the satyr at the Hillel. There's a social justice satyr. And Chabad, one yeah. probably. Yeah. Um, there was this guy, Jordan Diamond there. And he told me that he. Jordy. Well, he's not. We're not there yet. He's but totally, maybe after he's totally this. Jordy Diamond. So Jordan Diamond and Sarah Ben are hosting an Ariana Grande satyr. I said, tell me more. He's like, you know, we're we're going to have about 30 people in our dorm common room. You know, like, thank you next year in Jerusalem. The kids, and I was the just kids like, are all right. Wow, that is genius. Thank you next is an Ariana Grande song. I shouldn't oh, even have to okay. say that. So thank, thank you, you next year in Jerusalem. They're going to be searching. Half for of the- our listeners don't understand the first half of the joke. Half of our listeners <laughs> don't understand the second half of the joke. It's perfect. And I love them all. Uh, they're going to be searching for the Ari Komen. <laughs> like little little Ari, um, they're gonna break free from Egypt. That's and, another and, and Ariana Davidson. Grande song. Oh, well, there's they're adding the four X's after the four children, um, and the seven rings alongside the ten plagues. So that either means a lot to you and you love it, or you have no idea what I just said. But it was it's just amazing. I really hope listeners let us know all the things they do to swerve at the seder. Yeah, like know? I want to know. I want to know what you're theming your seder, and you know, like people are doing four twenty seders on yeah. cannabis seders on the second night. Like, let us know what is going on. We're actually the theme fir- of the seder this year is again Judaism. Judaism is is Exodus. The Exodus. <laughs> all right, so we got Ariana Grande seders in Durham, North Carolina. What do we got on the Upper West Side, Liel? I I have my kitchen is to kitchen gadgets. What Barbara Streisand's basement is to Malls. genetically designed dogs, which is to say, I have m- more than you should right. ever have, and her doll collection, uh, and her doll collection. And I should say. Your kitchen is a tiny little galley kitchen. Like there's, it is. there's no room for any of this. There's barely room it for a box of It has two ice cream machines. Yeah. It has two sous vide machines. It has three <laughs> instant pots. It has really an indoor smokeless grill. It has a very impressive array. The way that some people like set up a bunch of glasses of water to play the xylophone. <laughs> that is, that's like you have that that many instant pots. You're like playing the instant pots. I, I have an in-house smoker. I have yeah. a whole host yeah. of things. Uh, and I go crazy. And I cook this completely elaborate meal that I know like no one is actually fully going to appreciate because people don't really care. You just want to sit and be together. And like after two glasses of wine, do you really care? Like the meat is okay, fine. Uh, and and it's just, it's such an exhausting kind of draining experience. And I, I can't break free of the cycle. Break I, I, free. Yeah. As Ariana Grande um, says in this, in the Haggadah. So, you're, so help me, Mark you, Oppenheimer. Well, you're my only hope. So I should say. How do, how do we, how do we do this? I mean, I don't know. How, how do you break your addiction? It's not an addiction. It, it's just this position of, you know, this thing is about the food, a, a perfect, you know, orchestration of 
you know, I mean, ostentatious look, hosting. Look, there's a reason, you know, I don't go out on New Year's Eve, right? Because it's, you know, it's never, it never lives up to the expectation. You right. got you to set expectations low. And you low. have to stay out till midnight. And you have to stay it's so late. Um, well, I'm flattered and I guess charmed that you think that the Oppenheimers have it all solved. Um, if Sid were here. She would say, well, sure. I mean, I cook for a month. Right. And, for, you know, because <laughs> and, I can, and then Mark's relaxed. <laughs> and then on, and then I chop the vegetables for Mark's, for Mark's, air quotes, matzo ball soup. Right. And then Mark on Friday makes the matzo balls, puts together the soup, adds the vegetables, like, and then gets credit for the soup, which is everyone's favorite part anyway. Um, but really, I should let her speak for herself. So five times in the past week, tried to get Sid in the in media cooking, like <laughs> as she was cooking, to talk to me about it, about what's it like putting together a vegetarian seder. We also have some there used to be a vegan who comes. There is someone with celiac disease. Like there's many, and she wants to put together a seder with delicious foods that meet all of these needs. So. Um, about five times I tried to get her to talk about it. Every time I approached her, I was like, with my little recorder, I said, sweetie, could you like, go away? I'm cooking. Can't you get see? out of my face. I, I said, right. That's what I'm trying to capture is how much work you do. So finally, I booked some time. Yesterday at about 3.30, I said, she was taking a break, reading some Harry Potter to Anna. Something was simmering on the stove. I said, sit in like 10 minutes. And I said, Anna, in 10 minutes, could you let mommy go so that for five minutes I can talk? I booked some time and then they, <laughs> they, they agreed. I went to the oven timer. I set 10 minutes. When it beeped, they both agreed. And I took out the um, the, the brisket. The, I took out the the little Zoom H1N recorder and um, and we had this chat. <laughs> right. State your name. <laughs> I don't you state my name. No, you state your name. Why don't you say this is? Okay, this is Sid Oppenheimer, my wife of 13 years. And for all 13 years we've been married, we've had vegetarian Passover. Um, so tell us tell us about your journey to vegetarianism. Were you raised vegetarian? No. What was the cuisine like on Grand Street in, in, the, Fremer, in the Fremer household? Well, my sister and I were very picky eaters. I didn't eat any vegetables until I was 17 except the potato. That was, you were like a poor Irish child, basically. I like potatoes. <laughs> it is still your favorite food. My favorite food. Is the potato. The potato. So, okay, so, so. There will be potatoes at our Seder. Yeah, and so what did you, what, did, what was typically paired with the potato for, for your meals? Plain chicken breast. <laughs> Rebecca, this is, state your name, Rebecca. Rebecca Oppenheimer. Rebecca Oppenheimer. All right, there we go. So, um. And and so how did you decide, having been raised on plain chicken breast and potatoes, <laughs> to having been raised on an Irish pub diet, how did you decide and when did you decide to become a vegetarian? I don't think plain chicken breasts are an Irish pub. Well, sub in corned beef, boiled corned beef or whatever, but salted beef. There was beef. corned beef sometimes. Uh-huh. Um, was there chopped liver? We, you have to <laughs> there was chopped liver, but I did not partake of it. Having been raised on organ meats, potatoes, and and plain chicken, how did you decide to become a vegetarian? Well, I always felt very badly that I was eating dead animals, but since I basically subsisted on chicken breasts and potatoes and the occasional hamburger, it was hard to transition. But then when I was 17, I decided this is ridiculous. I need to learn to eat vegetables. So I did. Okay, so let's 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 move on to the vegetarian Passover. So 13 years now, we've been doing vegetarian Passover. We do not have any chametz, though we do eat kidney oat. We have rice and beans. That's permissible. That was relatively recent, though. We gave into that about what six, seven years ago. Okay, so what's the menu this year? Well, we start, of course, with our hard-boiled eggs, then our matzo ball soup, 
vegetarian, not chicken-based. Then we have for our main course, uh, matz lasagna, as well as eggplant parmesan, along with roasted cauliflower, roasted butternut squash, roasted rosemary potatoes, two types of salad, and two types of dessert. And the desserts? Flourless chocolate cake, and a lemon cheesecake, and a white chocolate and raspberry cheesecake. And do you, I mean, you make this extraordinary Passover spread. It's all vegetarian. Um, our friend, whose name rhymes with schmacks, needs a, uh, a gluten-free option because of his gluten insensitivity. Um, and uh, you, you honor that. How do we honor that? Well, m- much of what we prepare is does not have gluten. Um, the eggs are gluten-free, obviously, all the roasted vegetables, all the salads. So I was actually just talking to the friend whose name rhymes with schmacks, and he said he never leaves hungry. Okay, that's good. And then... And then one year we had a you had your friend whose name rhymes with Schmake was a was a Schmegan, but we, <laughs> he doesn't come anymore, right? Well, my friend whose name rhymes with Schmake came for like four years, True. and he was always a Schmegan the whole time. Um, and you know, similarly, like many of the things, the roasted vegetables, the salads, um, the soup were all things that he could that he could eat. Although it is hard, vegan is hard when you, especially if you're not doing kidney oat for the seder. It is hard to provide like a really substantive meal for the vegan. And I guess finally, you you know, you do this with such aplomb, such such eagerness every year. It seems like you this isn't so hard, right? I uh, have you met me? <laughs> this is I mean Passover for me lasts far more than eight days. Rebecca, since you're here, you um do you plan to make vegetarian Passovers when you grow up? Yes. You don't feel like you're going to go off to college and go off the derech and start eating meat? No, that's disgusting. We've never taught you it's disgusting. Yes, I know, but when you've never eaten something before, I think your body naturally doesn't want to eat it. Is that the way you feel about vaping and drugs? Yes, Dad. I'm not going to vape, I'm not going to play Fortnite, and I'm not going to do drugs. We've been over this. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. The way I learned about Passover, and probably the best telling of the Passover story, is on the Nickelodeon show Rugrats. And in case you actually don't know what Rugrats is, it is an animated series about a bunch of babies. And it's actually like very great and succinctly and kind of amazingly tells a Jewish story that is completely unnecessary 
on a like a mainstream children's show. I mean, I say this at the risk of sounding ridiculous because that show came on the air when I was already in high school. So some may wonder why I was watching it so religiously. But Rugrats remains, I think, the most serious, nuanced treatment of Jewish life, family, and faith that like any popular television show has ever produced in America. And that Passover episode is a masterpiece. And so this uh, week, as it is Passover upon us, uh, we called up Paul Germain, who was the co-creator of that amazing show and also other great shows like Recess and Lloyd in Space, uh, to talk to him a little bit about the origins of this wonderful episode. So I've I've read a lot about um about kind of the origin of this episode. I, I don't know what's uh truth and what's fiction. So so let's do kind of an oral history of the Rugrats Passover. How did this begin? People come to you and say we want to do a Hanukkah special, right? That's exactly right. We got uh we we had done a Christmas special for Nickelodeon in the early part of the third season. I don't remember what, but a long time before this one. And the show came out and it was a big success. And Nickelodeon called us and said, we want to do a Hanukkah special. And I was talking with one of my writers, uh, who, like me, is Jewish, a guy by the name of uh, John Greenberg. And uh, John said to me, why are we doing Hanukkah? That's not an important holiday. Let's do Passover. (laughs) (laughs) And and I thought, let's go old school here. So I called Nickelodeon. I told them we'd prefer to do Passover. They didn't have any objection to that, and we ended up doing a Passover episode. I mean, in a way, though, it's a, it's kind of a much tougher challenge, right? Because Hanukkah, whatever, you could be seasonal, you could play off the, it's not Christmas. I mean, you ended up also doing a masterful Hanukkah episode, which we may talk about some other time. But So when you set out to do Passover, so what's the first thought that goes through your mind? Like, how do we tell the story? Well, okay, so here was the thing. First of all, it's funny. I didn't think Passover was that as, as that big of a challenge. I actually thought it would be a lot of fun. And one of the reasons I, I wanted to do the, the Passover episode is that I love the Passover story because I think it's universal. I think it's a story about freedom that can appeal and apply to everyone's lives. And everyone can relate to, the, to a story of a people freeing themselves or being freed. And I, I just thought it was a perfect story to tell. And one of the things that I always loved, what I, what I thought about is that I, I've always loved the fact that, that the Passover story is, in my view, and I, I, I think this is, everyone's going to agree with this, is that it's, a, that it's a story you can tell in many different ways, right? You, there isn't a, a strict telling of the story that you have to do. You can, you know, every Haggadah is different. Everyone tells the story differently, and that really fit in with how what Rugrats is. We thought we can tell this really important story that that probably none of the the, the kids who are watching the show are going to know, either the Jewish ones or the Gentile ones. They're not going to know this story, so we can tell it. We can tell this the story that's important to us, and we it fit in perfectly with with the the whole structure of Rugrats fantasies where they kind of imagine themselves in the roles of the various characters in the story. Right. So Plus, I mean, when, when they say, let my babies go, it really resonates both for the story and, and for the it's Rugrats. Great. It's funny. And yet it's kind of it's kind of heavy at the same time. But it's then great. talking about heavy, you come to this point and, and then you have to represent the plagues. And, you know, you do frogs very well. You do wild beasts. These are funny. But then. 
there comes that last plague, uh, which is absolutely yeah. morbid and terrible. So I actually thought your, your solution was very elegant, but I, I want to hear kind of like a behind the music type of negotiation. How did you approach the, the killing of the firstborn? Well, now I don't remember the details of exactly, you know, there were four writers on the show. Let me just mention them because they were so important in figuring With out pleasure. how this was going to be. So it was Peter Gaffney, myself, um, and uh, uh, John Greenberg, and Rachel Lipman. Um, four, four brilliant Jews. <laughs> no, only three, because Peter Daphne's not Jewish. Oh, wow. well, <laughs> but, but three, three out passes. of four. <laughs> so you ended up doing something like taking away, right? The, 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 the firstborn is taken away, and then it's not very clear where he's taking away. Right. It's, we just didn't make it. We kind of, we kind of, we kind of make it sound like, oh, this isn't good, but we don't really spell out what that means. You know, right. we, we, you know, we don't use the word kill death, you know, we don't go there. We, we kind of, you know, you kind of get it, but you don't exactly, you, it's not exactly spelled out. It was kind of perfect for the show. So it's funny, you get that Angelica's really frightened, but you don't precisely, we're not hitting it, you know, we're not saying they are, you know, this, the, the firstborn is going to be killed. We don't say that. <laughs> Now, I think, you know, one of the things that I really loved about this episode is even more than other Rugrats episode, it really sort of played very well both on, on, on the baby's level and on the adult's level because here you have a, a, a mixed family, right? Um, and and Stu, who is not Jewish, is called upon to lead the Seder uh, and his, his kind of discomfort with the whole thing is palpable, which I think is something a lot of Jewish people who find themselves in Passover all of a sudden having to handle, you know, a religious ceremony, whereas most of the rest of the year is not geared towards that. Um, is that something that you guys came up with in the writer's room? Is that something that you kind of was important to you to get in the show, the sort of like um, basic sort of weirdness of one night a year in which you have to grapple seriously with religion. It, it wasn't exactly that that we were dealing with. I think what we were what we were thinking about more was that there's this adult way of telling a story, you know, this 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 kind of this 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 you know, this formal way of telling a story that's kind of dull and hard to put up with, and, you know, where you have to say this bit, you know, the, 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 the line, this, this vegetable, this green vegetable, what does it mean? Right. You know, <laughs> it's, it's like, it's, it's kind of silly, you're kind of laughing at it. At the same time, we're kind of doing a thing that we always did in Rugrats, which is to make fun of adult formality, right, in general. And then at, there was a, at, at a deeper level, what we were kind of commenting about is that Passover doesn't have to be, I mean, a Seder doesn't have to be this, this dour, serious, you know, humorless ritual. It can be a fun thing. For the benefit of... Be a fun way of telling a story. Right. And, and so what we did is we set it up so that the adults are having this formal 
the, this formal Seder. Meanwhile, upstairs, Grandpa's been locked in the attic, and the kids are one by one kind of discovering him there, and then eventually the adults do too. And he's just telling the story in his own words, his own way, which is what we think Passover is anyway. It's, it's passing on the story to the next generation in whatever way feels good, in whatever way tells the story and communicates the ideas. But that was kind of the key to the show. And, and, and it, I think it worked in- incredibly well, not just based on, on my enthusiasm for the show, but for this episode specifically. This was one of like the most successful ratings-wise and also critically acclaimed episodes you've had, right? People loved it. Yeah, they did, yeah. Yeah, and it's and people still do. They still tell me, "Oh, I learned about I learned about Passover from watching Rugrats special," <laughs> and you know, and it, it's people still play it at Passover. It's 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 exciting to be part of something like that. You know, we we didn't know at the time it would be, but it was kind of exciting when it was. So now, the person in the episode telling the story of Passover is Grandpa Boris, who's one of my absolute favorite characters, who I think is so so hilarious. Uh, yet I kind of vaguely recall at the time. Some people, including, if I'm not mistaken, the Anti-Defamation League, uh, had misgivings about Boris, right? That they called him kind of a, a stereotypical... Yeah, I never understood that because I, I don't... Here's what I can tell you. My, my grand, the, the grandparents in the show were named Boris and Minka. My grandparents were named Seaman and Minka. <laughs> I decided not to use Seaman right. <laughs> for kind of an obvious reason. <laughs> uh, and so I told the story. We, we called them Boris and Minka in the show. They're based on my grandparents, and my grandparents were a lot like that. <laughs> they didn't necessarily look like that, but they sure sounded like that. And they, they, they you know, the, just the, 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 the dialogue was, it's, it's practically straight from what my grandparents right. were like. So as far as I was concerned, I was telling a story about my grandparents. I heard about, I was already off the show working on another show at the time that the, that Anti-Defamation League thing happened. I never understood it. I always was really perplexed by it. I, I don't know why people felt that way, but as far as I was concerned, and Arlene, you know, the, the other executive producers also Jewish were concerned, we were just telling, Arlene was raised by her by her great uncle and, and aunt who were in, you know, the older generation. So she was directly raised by, by people from the old country. My, in my case, it was my grandparents. But this is what they were like to me. That I was just telling about family. So I don't know what the Anti-Defamation League was thinking, but I can't be in in other people's heads. That's all I can say. Hey, hey, Grandpa, the ADL thinks you're an anti-Semitic stereotype. That's Okay. That's really something. Okay, that's their opinion. I don't know what to say. I sincerely sure. hope that everyone listening right now will go out and rewatch probably all of the Rugrats oeuvre, but definitely start with a Passover episode. One of the things that I think made the the made it so perfect for Rugrats is that we really wanted to do a Jewish family, at least a, a, a partially Jewish family. Like, you know, Tommy's half Jewish. Because, because this was your background? Because it felt true to you? Yeah, because it was my background. I wanted to tell stories about... About, you know, about, I think every writer wants to do this. You want to tell stories about your own life and about your own background, right? And it, at the, we were at a point where it wasn't even a big deal, you know? Although it hadn't, it hadn't really been done before, it didn't seem like a big deal to do this. And we just did it. I mean, I don't think we, we, we asked anyone. We just did it. 
and and no one no one at Nickelodeon had any problem with it. And we just it was just what we did. We were just telling our own stories. And as I said, several of the writers on the show were were Jewish and wanted to tell this and loved telling the story themselves. It's just what we did. I mean, not only has it not been done before, kind of surprisingly, it really hasn't been done since. How do you explain that? I mean, Rugrats really remains this uh, this kind of shining beacon of really great, serious grappling with, with Jewish families in all their complexities. Uh, why do you think no one sort of followed your lead? Gosh, I don't know. I really don't know why. Um, to me, it, it, it wasn't, I didn't feel like I was, I wasn't particularly thinking about breaking new ground. I was just thinking about telling stories that I knew, you know, t- talking about my own life and my own background. I mean, not my life per se, but you know, you know what I mean? Telling, telling stories from, from my own experience, all the shows that I've done, um, that I did, that were my creations, were telling stories that to some extent reflected my life and the lives of people I knew. I don't know why it's not. It, it, it hasn't been picked up more broadly. I, I really don't know the answer. Well, let's hope that more people watch Rugrats and, and get serious about Jews on TV. Paul, thank you so much. You are so welcome. crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. You may not like this new mailbox song, but we haven't heard from you in so long. So we thought we'd get your attention, shine a light. Come on, pick up your pen and write. In the mailbox this week, just in time for Passover, we get this. 
Hi, I'm calling in from Luang Prabang, Laos. I'm here on a year-long fellowship and I decided that I would take it upon myself to host a fun casual Seder for my friends because Passover is important to me. But then once I committed to this and lured my friends in with the promise of four wine glasses, I realized that I've never cooked dinner for a big group of people and since I'm only 22, I've never hosted my own Seder before. I do enjoy cooking, but a small town in Southeast Asia isn't the ideal place to go shopping for ingredients that are kosher for Passover. And to make things more interesting, it's actually the Lao Buddhist New Year from now until the Wednesday before Passover. And I'm really excited about the Lao New Year, and it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience, but this doesn't really leave me much time to cook and prepare for the Seder. So I'm pretty stressed out between the time crunch and the lack of kosher ingredients and the pressure of hosting for the first time, especially for an audience that doesn't know much about Passover. So I was wondering if you have any tips. What a terrific question. I think we should put that to our next guest. Stephanie, who's on the line? We are on the line with food writer and cookbook author Melissa Clark. She's a staple of the New York Times food section where she writes the popular column, A Good Appetite. Melissa, welcome. Thank you so much. Wait. I'm going to go off script here and say, first of all, were you intending? That's a hilarious pun that she's a staple because that's like a food I know. Term. I was just thinking that's, that, too. That's, that's, <laughs> Melissa is a staple of the meal that we eat in The New York Times every <laughs> Wednesday. But also, Melissa, are you Jewish? Uh, yes. Oh, OK. I didn't know. We're having you on either way. But I, I just wanted to, I would like to know who I'm dealing with here. I like to know how safe I can feel. That's yeah, a, okay. no, Mark, Mark, I know Mark the last a... name is Clark. It's like, you know, and it's funny because my sister works for Jewish week and she just wants to change her name. She's like, can't I be grandma? Can I use grandma's maiden name and be a Weinberg? Nobody knows. You know? <laughs> Who's your sister? Her name's Amy Sarah Clark. Oh, we worked <laughs> nice, together. Nice Jewish, Jewish name. Nice uh, Jewish name. Right? A long time ago. Wow. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. great. Uh, we should also say that um, Melissa, I, I almost said Amy, we should also say Melissa is, uh, in, in my opinion, as someone who cooks a lot off of a lot of people's recipes, is one of the very few people, maybe two or three people who, who I consider infallible. Every recipe oh, wow. works. Whoa, that's a lot of pressure. I don't know if I can always. handle that. So keep it up, please. <laughs> well, I'm going to add pressure to this because uh -oh. I will say that, like, I learned to cook through your recipes. Wow. And my husband, yeah, my husband and I started sort of with the easier stuff, but we basically like you are our Bible. <laughs> oh my! We God. all have sheet pans now. I, like, have to, we're... I have to go hide <laughs> under the table now because. <laughs> what I have to add to that is, um, I don't cook, but I consider you an excellent writer and a fine human being. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just let's just you know make me crawl away in embarrassment yeah. here. But, uh... This interview is over. We actually don't have any questions. We just wanted to tell you how much we love you. Thank you for being an unorthodox. Okay, great. We'll talk to you later. Now. <laughs> I think you file your taxes on time and vaccinate your children. That's what I think of you, Melissa. I do vaccinate my children. My taxes are on extension. Sorry. Oh! You know, it's been very busy. This the bubble has popped. It's busy. What can I tell you? It's been busy. We know you actually have a recipe tester there today, but I imagine yes. that is that is not about Passover. Like You might already be prepping Thanksgiving at this point, as far as we know. We're not quite up to Thanksgiving, although my boss did make a joke the other day that it's time to sit down for a Thanksgiving meal. Um, no, we are, Passover um, happens in my kitchen in February or so, which is actually a good time to make brisket, right? I mean, that's really when you want to eat it. So I've done testing for that. Um, then I'm going to make it again on Friday for, so our, you have, for our Seder. So you have like the, the recipe testing and the photos for the the New York Times website to go up and then you actually have to redo it all for your actual Seder. 
Yeah, but I'm not going to make, I'm actually not going to make that same brisket. So I did a brisket recipe for the Times. I'm doing a different brisket on Friday night for my family. And that is because I did a citrusy brisket, which is delicious. It's, you know, it's got onions and um, lemon juice and orange juice, and it's very bright and springy. But my sister doesn't eat um, citrus because she gets migraines. So I'm going to do a modified version where I'll take the same recipe. I'll do the caramelized onions. Um... But instead of citrus, I'll use some vinegar, and that way we can all share it. Are you super bummed when it's time to like go into the kitchen and like just cook for your family and not you know millions of fans? Do you think like I did this already? I did it two months ago. Why do I have to do it again now? Why can't we no, like order I, actually, Domino's? I, I love it. I love it because I don't have to write anything down. You know, like last night I was making dinner for myself and my husband, and. I, I was making tofu and broccoli. I'm like, oh, I should write this one down. And so it's like I have a pad and I have to write all this stuff down. I just like cooking and not having to think about it, you know, kind of going on autopilot. And so when I cook for the Seder, I mean, I know approximately what I'm going to make. Obviously, you know, I'm going to buy the briskets on order. I've got my onions, but I'll just cook. And I really, I find that so meditative and relaxing in a way. It's very, it feels very different from work cooking, which is also great, but it's just a different process. So you have written two books with Instant Pot recipes. That is sort of like your thing of late. Are you going to do any Instant Pot stuff for Passover? Um, You know, I think I'm going to do the brisket in the Instant Pot. So... I didn't write the recipe that way for the times again, because I wanted to make it super accessible, but anybody who has an instant pot knows that if you brown the meat, you know, and you get the, you brown, you do the onions, you brown the meat, it all goes in the instant, it can all go in the instant pot and then you can just let it braise in there. And I really do find, especially for brisket, cause you know how brisket can be, right? Brisket is like, sometimes it's nice and tender and then sometimes it's dry and stringy, right? It's always nice and tender when you do it in the Instant Pot. So I will be using it for the, uh, for the main course. So since the Instant Pot is like my very close second religion after Judaism, <laughs> uh, now is a good time to stop and say that the Instant Pot is a, a magical, miraculous, electronic uh, six-in-one cooker that is uh, mainly known for its ability to uh, pressure cook food in uh, very short periods of, of time. Um, Stephanie said yesterday something interesting. How do you want to? Well, so I think there's actually something kind of brilliant about the idea of like we had to wait. The the, the reason we ate matzah is because there was like no time for it to leaven on the on the journey out of Egypt. And there's something about the instant pot, which is like such a funny analog to right. that. <laughs> there's so no time true. to wait seven hours for the brisket. Here's a 45 minute recipe. Well, exactly. I mean, look, you know what? We've always been busy as Jews. We're, we were busy then, you know, <laughs> running away. We're busy or making our, our big escape. We're busy now, you know, making our big, you know, seders to Med to school has a lot of so. homework. You're studying for the bar. There's just a yeah. lot going on when you're Jews. <laughs> That's right. So no, Nobel prizes don't come easy. We got to work really hard. So who has time for seven hour brisket or, or you know. So we spend a lot of time thinking, I think, about what we're going to serve at the Seder, what we're going to eat, all those things. But then there's like actually a week of a week after, right, where we're not eating bread. We're eating like a little bit differently than normal. Do you have any yes. favorite foods that you're making that like you're pulling out of that for that week? Before I even let Melissa answer that question. No, let her I answer the question. The, that the matzo lasagna she put up on the Times <laughs> yesterday like looks so amazing that my wife oh. sent it to me the second it went up being like, please make that Sunday <laughs> night. Yes, exactly. Well, matzo lasagna is definitely going to be on the menu. I mean, I love matzo brai. I cannot wait for matzo brai. I almost made it today. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> Are you Just salty wait. or sweet? 
I, you know, it's funny because I'm sweet for everything else. I'm sweet for um, all kinds of things where it's a salty sweet divide. But matzo brai, I am absolutely salty. I like it. Amen. Super Amen. salty, super crispy. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I would eat it all year long, except I forget about it. But then now in the spring, I'm like, I see the matzo box everywhere. I'm like, I can't wait for matzo brai. But you know what else I do? I mean, so how many of you go Sephardic during uh, Passover? I'm like, so I think there was that Sephardic relative. So. <laughs> yeah, the kidney oat. I mean, we're... Exactly. So so my household, we're vegetarians. So for us, kidney oat is kind of non-negotiable. I mean, we, we'd have nothing to eat if we weren't eating rice and beans and things like that. <laughs> it's so true. You know. What about you? You go, you go, you go, you're all kidney oat for Passover no. You know, we kind of wing it every year, I have to say. We're we're, we're not super observant, so it depends on who we're eating with, what we're eating. You know, we eat, I mean, just talk about the Instant Pot. Let's just talk about beans and lentils. I mean, you know, it's hard to it's hard to give those up when they're so easy to make. <laughs> There's the Instant Pot is right there. So we got a, a voicemail this week from a listener of ours of our podcast in Laos. She's 22 years old. She's never held a Seder before. She wants to have a Seder for some fellow, it was unclear if, you know, traveling Jews who are passing through Laos or for some native Laotians. And she said, I'm going to have a really hard time shopping for Passover. And I've oh, also yeah. never done this before. Can you suggest some recipes or something I could do? Now, let's say we're not super concerned about it being 100% kosher for Passover, let's say we can allow kidney oat, knowing what you know about, you know, Southeast Asian cuisine. <laughs> what, what, do you have any, any just sort of general ideas you want to throw at her? Well, I think the soup will be easy. I mean, I feel like it'll be, you know, even if you don't do like a, a strict chicken soup, but I feel like soup is such a big part of the culture. You have to take a pass on the noodles. Right. But I mean, and fish balls, think about it. Like fish balls, really? It's like you could combine gefilte fish and a matzo Ooh. ball. And you do a fish ball, right? So you could do a broth with fish balls. And um, I don't know. I mean, I guess something to sub in for the maybe ginger instead of horseradish. Ooh. So there you're having the mashups. You're having the gefilte fish, chicken soup, matzo ball mashup. So that's what I would start with. And then I would do, I would probably do fish. I think salmon would be lovely. So I would, I would do more of a pescatarian meal. Amazing. We're going to pass so that on to her. Here's a much more pedestrian question. This podcast goes up on Thursday, uh, meaning one day to go. Uh, and yes. I know there are some people who are listening who are like, oh, my God, it's tomorrow. I haven't even started. <laughs> what is one thing they could do that is absolutely 100 percent Melissa Clark foolproof approved that would uh, would sort of save their Seder? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, first of all, don't be afraid to buy things. You know, I mean, if you've got one day to go. We're, you know, and so you're obviously you're not going to make the gefilte fish. You're going to buy the gefilte fish. I would say buy the gefilte fish, make the horseradish. Try to get a horseradish root and grind it yourself like that. And if that's too big an order, then try to get really good horseradish. Um, so I would also say, um, you know, buy the chicken broth, make the matzo balls. If you can't get a brisket or you don't want to do a brisket or that takes too long, don't forget about roast chicken. You know, roast chicken and you can do it in a sheet, do a sheet pan chicken, cut up the chicken, marinate it the day before, and then just do a gorgeous roast chicken with, with root vegetables, with carrots. You don't even have, you know, don't worry about a kugel because if that's going to be too much, just tons of roasted potatoes and roasted carrots. Keep it simple. Um, I mean, you know, obviously you, um, and the set. okay, you got to do the set. So do that, that make that that morning. That's going to be something that's good, you know, if you can do it that morning. But you've got this. You've got this. You've got a whole day. You are going to be so set and by dessert. Amen. Melissa Clark, you wrote 
the entry on black and white cookies in our new book, The 100 yes, Most Jewish Foods. Yes, your new fabulous foods. book. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Um, what is your favorite Jewish food? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, it's funny because black and white cookies are, are, are up there. But, you know, I mean, and as you thought of, as you wrote and thought about in that book, we you know, what are Jewish foods? There are a few things I really closely remember from my grandmother's kitchen, my kosher grandmother's kitchen that I will always think of as Jewish food. And they're not necessarily Jewish foods, but it's funny. It's like, this is what I think of. Okay. Baked apples. She used to make these baked apples and, you know, she would serve and they always had, they had cream on them. So it was, she would serve that she'd bake them, um, on Fridays, right? So before Shabbos. And then we would have them for lunch. We'd have a dairy lunch on Saturday and she'd pour cream over them and they were cold. So they were these cold baked apples. And that is to me, it's like, you can't get any more Jewish mm. than that, even though that is absolutely not a Jewish food. Um, you know, and, and more traditional things. I love matzah bread. I love hamantaschen, especially the prune ones and the walnut ones. God, those walnut ones are so good. Um, I really love, I mean, chicken, chicken and matzo ball soup is probably one of my, that is my comfort food. Aside from the baked apples, it's the chicken soup with the matzo balls. I like a hard chewy matzo ball, even though my parents kept trying to make them light and fluffy. I I'm a hundred percent there with you. A you know, I like, I like, I like the texture. Yeah. I don't want it falling apart in my soup. Mm -hmm. Um, and Oh, stuffed derma, stuffed derma, love stuffed mm. derma. How come you don't get a nice, it's so hard to find. You have to go to a bar mitzvah for stuffed derma. Anyway. So I'd say stuffed derma is another thing that just so, not um, as popular as it should be. Oh, and bagels and locks. I forgot. Oh, my number one thing. <laughs> so you That's have uh, approximately a hundred favorite so Jewish all, foods. All of them. All of them, basically. Um, yeah. Melissa Clark, Melissa Clark, you have saved uh, Passover Seder this year for Jews from, from Laos uh, to the 50, the to 50 states. So from Laos to Long Island, thank you so much it. for being on Unorthodox. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was great. So my favorite restaurant in New York City is called Fairfax. My second favorite restaurant is called Joseph Leonard. They are both owned by Gabriel Stolman, along with a bunch of other restaurants all in the West Village. He's a restaurateur. He's a restaurateur. Um, each of these restaurants have mezuzahs on the door and have this like nice Hamish feeling. They, you know, they don't, they're not kosher. They're not noticeably Jewish in any other way. Um, but Gabriel is Jewish and of Moroccan descent. His mother's family is from Morocco. And Moroccan Jews celebrate something called Mumuna, which is an amazing celebration at the end of Passover. Which is what every Ashkenazi Jew in Israel begs all their Moroccan friends to get an invite to, because that is the bomb. So Gabriel wrote the entry for Mafleta for our 100 Most Jewish Foods book. Mafleta is this amazing crepe-like pastry that you eat on Mamuna. And so since Mamuna is coming up, I sat down with Gabriel to talk a little bit about the holiday, which he celebrated growing up in Fairfax, Virginia, and which he's also bringing to the West Village next week with a Mamuna celebration at his restaurant Fairfax. Mamuna comes from the, the philosopher Maimonides. And what Mamuna is, is it celebrates the end of Passover. And so we eat certain things uh, that we are not allowed to eat during Passover, right? At Mamuna, we eat uh, this very traditional dish, mufleta. I think a crepe is the best analogous thing that people who don't know what mufleta is will be familiar with. And you're cooking in like a cast iron skillet one at a time. Plenty of butter, 
so that it doesn't stick and it could slide around and you kind of flip it and it starts to blister a little bit and you get these little pockets like turning golden brown. And then you take it and you've got this warm, doughy crepe. And most customary in my home growing up was a bowl of milk and then a bowl of honey. You would take a bunch of the honey and you smear honey all on the inside of this mufletta. And then you roll it up like a cigar, right? Um, which there's a healthy amount of Moroccan pastries that are rolled up like cigars, generally with more of like a phyllo dough or something. And you roll it up and then you, you just like dunk it in the milk and then take a bite and then dunk it in the milk and take a bite. And I mean, it, it was it was like dessert. It was great. And, you know, I can remember my grandmother Perla's arthritic hands, like making them like while people are eating them around the kitchen and at the table. In Morocco, the way my mother tells me it was, the kids would go house hopping. You know, I mean, almost like a kicked up version of Halloween, you know, going door to door, except you would go into the homes and you would eat sweets and pastries and you would leave and you'd go to the next home and go to the next home and go to the next home. Now, I did not grow up in a neighborhood that was full of Jews. Uh, I... And, and whatever Jews were in our neighborhood were not Moroccan Jews. So nobody celebrated Mamuna in a way in Fairfax, Virginia, where people could just go house hopping. So the way that we did it is we just invited everyone from the community to our home. So what Mamuna is, is the celebration of uh, sweetness and joy and coming out of, you know, a previous eight day period where we exercise self-restraint. We remind ourselves of times that were not as good. And uh, we end it with, with sweets and pastries and cookies and stuff. And so you're actually bringing your mother in from Fairfax to make these at your restaurants, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So next week, she's going to meet up with two of our pastry chefs. And then my mom and I and Nama and the rest of the team of the Jewish Food Society uh, will host Mamuna to the West Village and anybody that wants to come hang out with us. And uh, we'll do our best to, you know, recreate pockets of, you know, neighborhoods in Rabat on the corner of West 4th and West 10th. For our next segment, we're going to throw this to our producer, Josh Cross, who brings us a really interesting story about Passover in prison. A few months ago, Simone Weichselbaum of The Marshall Project, a nonprofit investigating problems in the criminal justice system, reached out to us with an interesting story. Her longtime contact, William Rapfogel, had a story to tell about his Passover experience during his stay in jail. Now, Rapfogel is pretty notorious if you know his story, but if you don't, just know that he pled guilty to grand larceny, money laundering, and criminal tax fraud. Rapfogel was the longtime executive director and CEO of the Metropolitan Council on Jewish Poverty, a charity that focuses on taking care of the poorest among New York's Jews. Rapfogel was accused of working with others to steal a total of $9 million, and he was charged with personally taking $3 million. After he was convicted, he spent nearly three years in prison, 
We're not here to rehash that story, however. Instead, we're getting a glimpse into what goes into arranging a celebration of the holiday concerned with breaking free from bondage while you yourself are incarcerated. Here's Rapvogel reading an edited version of the story he told to the Marshall Project. Passover is a holiday that commemorates the Jewish people escaping slavery in Egypt. It is often referred to as the Festival of Freedom. My Passover in prison was at the Walkhill Correctional Facility, 75 miles north of New York City. As the holiday approached, I worried about my family and how my circumstance was hurting them. There I was sitting in prison, stewing in guilt, self-pity and pain, which wasn't helpful. Being behind bars at any time is already a terrible experience. Add in a holiday that highlights the end of bondage, and then the ordeal becomes ironic, sad, and very uncertain. Inmates, it became clear, have a unique connection to the Exodus story. I've been religious my entire life, and even in prison, I remained a devout Jew. I never took off my yarmulke while incarcerated. In fact, the corrections officer once called me a Jewish nigger for refusing to remove my skullcap. A Seder is not prison friendly. It involves food and drinks that are inaccessible to inmates. Things like four cups of grape juice and stacks of matzah. I was anxious imagining how the administration would react to me wanting to celebrate Passover, and I didn't want to break Jewish law despite being imprisoned. The Aleph Institute, an organization that advocates for Jewish inmates and their families, provided the holiday basics such as matzah and frozen kosher food. Frankly, knowing that we would have those basics empowered us to ask for more. I insisted on having shmura matzah, a special round handcrafted matzah, which was part of my family's tradition for as long as I can remember. The rabbinic chaplain assured me that he would get it. The rabbi explained that we should prepare for a large group of Seder goers and that any inmate who identified as Jewish would be invited. The news surprised me. I never thought that prison officials would allow us to have a Seder. Now there was an open invitation. To my amazement, the superintendent, a tough but fair woman, approved holding the Seder in the prison synagogue. The sign-in sheet slowly began to fill up. Our rabbinic chaplain worked hard to make sure that the Seders were not only kosher, but met our religious standards. Despite the success, I was still overcome with gloom. This was my first Passover without my family. My wife, my children, my grandchildren would be sitting down to Seders without me, and there was no way to invite them to what I was planning, even if it was an option. We focused on putting together the most detailed Passover program that Walkhill had ever had, and my sadness began to fade. Word began getting out. While running in the gym or lifting weights in the yard, I was approached by people I had never met asking to join our Passover group. A few days later, I stood at the head of a long table in a prison synagogue and led a Seder of 30 inmates. While one of the corrections officers said, what is this, a Jew convention? The other officers were respectful, even helpful. It felt as though all the bad stuff that had been happening had brought me here for a reason to this very moment to bring a sliver of positivity and faith in a New York prison. Special thanks to Simone Weichselbaum for helping bring us this story. 
You can find out more about The Marshall Project and even read a longer version of this piece at themarshallproject.org. So as some of our listeners might have noticed by looking at the calendar, the second Seder this year will be celebrated on April 20th, or 420, the International Day of, you know, smoking some weed. And so uh, we have the pleasure of having with us on the show today Kat Goldberg, the Director of Community Engagement at Mozu, and a celebrated uh, entrepreneur and writer about all things cannabis. Kat, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. First of all, tell us, what's Mosin? Mosin is a cannabis brand based out of LA that was created by two Jewish brothers who just realized that everyone kind of needed a little bit more balance in their lives. And the way to accomplish that wasn't necessarily by getting people super stoned. It was just by figuring out how to add in THC into a, a normal lifestyle. And this has a, a uniquely Jewish twist, right? You, you do have dollar services with weed. You're very engage in, in the Jewish aspect of it. How, how does that connect? So what we've been able to do is kind of get, especially kind of like senior member groups at different synagogues have come and we've done these little presentations and conversations about cannabis uh, where they can learn about it and kind of discuss it in a really comfortable setting. Basically saying, Zadie, sit down. <laughs> I have big news for you. This is legal now. Here's a treat. Yes, please stop suffering. If you don't want to get high, you don't have to get high. We have everyone use the pain lotion, you know, fi figuring out different methods that don't necessarily get them high, but that can relieve some of their pain. I believe in tikkun olam, you know, like living this life where I can help people live in less pain, where I can make the world a little bit better, not a whole lot better, but like a, a teeny bit better. Speaking of making the world a little bit better, we have a four hour festive meal with our children and our uncles and our aunts and our family and people we like and people we don't like happens to be on 420. Do you want to explain to our listeners uh, what 420 means quickly? 420 is kind of this international um, counterculture holiday that's going mainstream to celebrate cannabis because there's celebrations around the world in Spain and Israel. It's really cool. So it's sort of like all the news media at this point know that 420 is the weed day. All the brands launch on 420, and thank God this year it happens to coincide with Passover. And so how do we make the second Seder on 420? How do we bring that into the Seder? For, for those of us who may be inclined to have some help sitting through said four hours of rereading the Haggadah for the second time with your family. What I would suggest is that you know how you have the four glasses of wine? Replace them with... Yeah, and to say something either between yourselves, between the adults mindfully to yourself that, okay, so this year I'm going to try an experiment. I'm going to substitute uh, my four glasses of wine, maybe for four hits, <laughs> and I'm going to see how that makes me feel. I could eat a lot more. I could laugh. You know, it might not make the slightest difference, but what happens when I, when I choose to use cannabis instead of alcohol. Uh, I'm assuming some of our listeners right now are kind of weirded out. Some may even be appalled that we're even discussing this so openly. What, what, what do you say to that? I say that Hashem created a plant. Uh, it says in the Torah that, you know, all the plants were created for us. I think there's that 
either Aristotle or Socrates quote about how food should be your medicine. So I think following along those lines, it's not as outrageous as people make it seem. They don't want people who are impaired driving on the roads. They might not want someone impaired, you know, teaching their kids. And I think those are all totally reasonable concerns. But from a Jewish standpoint, you know, I, I honestly believe it's a plant that Hashem created. We have extracted in such a way that we can use it in a cool new setting. On a night in which you're compelled to basically drink the equivalent of a bottle of wine, impairment really may not be the biggest issue. What do you think for the parent who's sitting there with the three or the two or the four loved ones who are screaming and bored and don't want to eat the brisket again and are rude to grandma? How does this change the experience? What I found with parents of kids that age is that there's sort of this nonstop nagging and there's nothing you can really do about it. It's got to be a mental change. The kids aren't going to change their behavior. So it might be interesting that if a parent used a little cannabis before while they were getting ready, they might have more of um, like an openness and a silliness to the kids' questions. People spend so much time worrying about what people are going to think. Are we on schedule? Are we doing things exactly how they should be? And not living in the moment, especially during a holiday, celebrating with their family. Which in a holiday dedicated to kids asking questions you know, may not be the most terrible idea. Right. It kind of adds this playfulness, childlike awe quality into the way of being and seeing. And I think that is a really positive experience, especially for the children to see their parents in a slightly more relaxed state than always so uptight. That's a great slogan. Weed, making your kids more tolerable. <laughs> Kat, thank you so, so much for taking the time and a, and a happy Passover and a happy 420 to you. My pleasure. Thank you so much and be safe while you're celebrating, okay? <laughs> thank you. What's in a name? What's in Liel's middle name? We have held this competition. We've had the Sweet 16 bracket on the Facebook group. We've been looking for middle name for the middle name Ryan, the middle name free Liel Leibovitz. And people got really heated. There were camps of people who fought for their choice. What's so interesting me. about this is, you know, this bracket, like the actual bracket, which is based is one that I hear only rumors about. Right. Like apparently there you was an don't actual actually know what the basketball college thing basketball is. thing. I right. think Virginia won, yeah. but I only know this from last week's Time Magazine. So, <laughs> Josh, Josh Cross, you were the uh, the the David Stern, the the basketball basketball commissioner of this of this uh, competition. Can, you want to tell us what happened? First of all, it's Adam Silver now. Come on. Oh, sorry. It it's a different Jew. Different, Jew. <laughs> different, Jew. different Jewish lawyer. Um, so obviously we ended last week with the Sweet 16. And so the Elite Eight, which was the eight names that made it into the following round, were Belgium, Shlomo, Elvis, Seymour, Leopold, as in Belgian's king, Liel Leibovitz, Stephanie, and Ahab. From those, we went to the final four. Oh, well, I got to say, Belgium, from that round, I, I was really tempted to basically rig the election and vote 100 times, which, you know, the way Josh set up the system was entirely possible. <laughs> I didn't. 
Uh, I, I was I was rooting for Belgium at that point, but then Josh, what happened at the uh, Elite Eight? First of all, I was tracking your IP address. <laughs> Second of all, the, the the Final Four, you actually had Shlomo beat out Belgium, and Seymour beat Elvis, which was a mistake because Lee Elvis would have been awesome. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Liel Leibovitz hung in there, and Stephanie beat out Ahab. So we were left. Yes, with, she did. Of course, of course. So. Again, Shlomo, Seymour, Stephanie, and Leah Leibovitz. Um, I just want to say that it is ridiculous that my name is in the Final Four. <laughs> Not only is your name in the Final Four, the championship match, Stephanie beat Leah Leibovitz. So the championship match was Stephanie versus Shlomo. I feel honored. Josh, how many voted in total on the final two? Hundreds. It was nearly 500. Okay. I had my brothers here. I voted once or twice. Um, but Josh... Who won? My what? What is what is my new name, Josh? What what must I now be known as? Your name is Liel Shlomo Leibovitz. Yay! Even Liel I can admit, I can concede. Shlomo Leibovitz. I admit defeat. It was a worthy opponent. So some would associate your new middle name, Shlomo, with Shlomo from the Bible, Solomon, King Solomon, right? One of the most learned Gentiles I know, I'm not going to name him because I think this would embarrass him here, a real, like a real Galanterman, a real Talmud Chacham, a really learned guy, Irish Catholic, once was asking me about Yiddish put-downs, Yiddish slurs. And he's like, okay, what's a schmuck? And I was like, oh, schmuck's sort of a dick. What's a schlamazel? What's a schlemiel? What's a putz? What's a this? And then he gets, and what's a shlomo? (laughs) And it's like, my friend, shlomo is actually Solomon from the Bible. He's like... What? Because yeah, in what? his mind, yeah. Shlomo is just, it sounds so put downy. Liel Shlomo Leibovitz, it's an honor to do a podcast uh, with you. It is honor to do also. This is the Shlomo <laughs> voice. And I said to everyone, thank you for voting. I am very touched. And uh, from now on, uh, my name is Shlomo. Liel Shlomo Leibovitz. We have live shows coming up. We are going to be at the Hollis Hills Bayside Jewish Center in Queens, May 29th. We have some very, very big podcasting guests. We have Leon Nafok of Slowburn and Claire Malone of 538's Politics Podcast. You can get more information and get your ticket at bit.ly slash UO Live Queens. That's UO Live Queens. We're also going to be in Chicago on June 26th. We're still working on the details, but save the date. Right, like if you're going to leave town that weekend. Yeah, don't leave town. Just stay there. Don't, don't leave town. I know it's going to be hot. It's June. You want to go to Lake Michigan? Is that near there? Don't do it. <laughs> if you have a great lake of your choice. Also, we have uh, a couple special episodes coming up. Our con- we're doing a second conversion episode, and we're doing our Jews Across America episode again. So we want your stories. Call us at 914-570-4869. Tell us your conversion story, or you can email it to unorthodox at tabletmag.com, and maybe we'll call you back, talk to you more, make a segment out of your journey. Uh, Jews Across America, are you a Jew from an interesting, off-the-grid place, from an unusual place? Do you have a story from your town? Do you have an immigration story? something about Jewish experience outside of, say, I don't know, New York, New York, L.A., Miami. No New York, L.A., or Miami. How about that? The rest of y'all, 914-570-4869, contribute to our Jews Across America episode. Uh, Mazel Tov? Leo, do you have a Mazel Tov this I week? have a Mazel Tov. And what is it? To the Israeli spacecraft Bereshit, uh, which, you know, okay, crashed on its way to the moon, which is what happens when you let the Israeli drive the spaceship. <laughs> People who can't even, you know, do a, a, a roundabout. Uh, um, but, you know, 
still, Israel is only one of uh, four nations, one of only seven nations to attempt this and one of only four nations to actually reach the moon. So pretty soon, uh, there'll be an, an Israeli uh, community, an Israeli S- settlement. Soon by you. On the dark side of the moon. <laughs> um, soon by you. They used ways to get there. They did. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie, Mazel Tov? Um, I have a Mazel Tov to... It's not a Mazel Tov, it's like a plug. Uh, Gabriella Gershenson, who was on this show a few weeks ago and mm-hmm. who's an excellent food writer, mm-hmm. has a great piece, a great like big feature in food and wine um, all about Passover. It's called A Seder to Savor. You guys can check it out on food and wine. Gabby Gershenson. And my Mazel Tov is to my rabbi, John J. Tilson of Bethel Kester Israel in New Haven. As many New Englanders know, Stop and Shop workers are on strike. So for those of us who are going to get our Passover products at Stop and Shop, the rabbi had a message. And what he said is, based on his reading of halakha, uh, anything that we have to cross a picket line to get is not kosher for Passover. And he told us all we had to shop elsewhere. And I bumped into two of my fellow congregants at the shop right in Hamden that day, avoiding the stop and shop and not crossing the picket line. So Kol HaKavod to Rabbi John J. Tilson and best of luck to the stop and shop workers. We hope you get a contract soon. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. You can ask for the newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and putting newsletter in the subject line. We often come to you live, for example, in Queens and Chicago coming up. If you want to book us or advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross. That's J Cross, cross with a K at tabletmag.com. We're on Instagram at unorthodox podcast, on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Please remember to go rate us on iTunes and share us with your friends. Uh, the two best things you can do for us besides listening are giving us money and giving us props. So give, give props to us. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and our associate producers are Sarah Fredman Ader and Noah Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media intern is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Andy Hahn, the Kirtan Rabbi in Northampton. It was great to meet you up at Harold's Ice Cream. We come to you from Argo Studios, who may in fact be Elijah. Shalom, friends. <laughs> <laughs>